Take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We'll be focusing our attention on verses 27 through 39 over the next several weeks. Such a profound text in our series that we have entitled, What is a Christian? Simple essence of that is wrapped up simply in this phrase. A Christian is one who shows fruit of repentance in life. One who shows fruit of repentance in life. Here is what Jesus says, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Or even the sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. We can stop right there. Let's pray. Father, as we approach these words, I pray that our hearts are brought to an understanding of the depth found here by Your words and Your life. May we, in our modern day in which we are living, take the truth which you are sharing here and begin to put it into practice, not only in the church, but with those that are outside of the church, the world that is pagan, the world that hates you. May we exemplify your very character and nature through love so that the world might know who you are, and what life is. All this to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You remember over the past several weeks, we have been working our way through this sermon of Jesus Christ so that we can understand its truth in our own lives as we live today. The words are simple enough to read, even as we heard them this morning. They are authoritative. They are the words of God, and they are profound because in them is the definition of what a Christian is. For various reasons today within evangelicalism, it seems as if that is a difficult thing to define and be discerned. Many can tell you how to become a Christian. There is much written out there about how to become a Christian, but there seems to be somewhat a confusion as to what a Christian is. And I believe that is happening because defining a Christian by the what is to speak about Christianity in terms of what it looks like in the life of those who actually know Jesus Christ by faith. And therefore, in evangelicalism at large, there is seemingly a place where they've relegated the definition of what is a Christian to just simply how someone becomes a Christian. They have left off the actual what alone. They have left it alone altogether because it's just too hard to think about that in our life. It's easier to think about how someone becomes a Christian, and we come up with all kinds of systems and fancy theories about how to share the gospel, if it's the gospel at all. But we rarely talk about the what of Christianity, what it is to actually be a Christian. But Jesus does not do that. In fact, throughout the entire Gospels, and even throughout the entire New Testament, you find this principle over and over again. It often says, here's how to believe in Jesus, but here's what it means to believe in Jesus. Here's what a Christian is. And so Jesus doesn't leave off what a Christian is, and we ought not either. And so here is Jesus preaching to the people, and he is defining what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. This was a confusing reality in ancient Israel. Why? Because a relationship with God was defined by the keeping of the Mosaic law. <clears throat> if you kept the law, you were a person of God. In other words, it had been relegated to an external reality only. <clears throat> Israel thought about the what, and they thought about the what in a way in which no one could truly be saved. It was a works righteousness. What was taught by the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a justification by effort. Justification by doing whatever the law said. And Jesus comes along and he begins to set the record straight about justification by faith alone in him alone. And so this is a simple passage. It is a simple message contrasting those inside the kingdom with those who are outside the kingdom. Everybody who has ever lived falls into one of two groups. 
There is no middle group. There is no neutral group. There is no group in which you can sit there and decide, I want to go down path A or path B. You are either in one of those two groups. Either you are in the blessed group or you are in the cursed group. I'm not talking about from birth. From birth, we are all in the cursed group. And God, by His grace, has chosen to take some out of that cursed group, but there is no other group. Those are the only two groups. While there may be all kinds of different religions in the world, different ways in which people think that they can find justification, before God there are only two groups, those who are blessed and those who are cursed. Great White Throne Judgment Day, there will only be one line. It will be the line for the cursed. Why? Because Jesus Christ already took the judgment for the blessed. Jesus begins His sermon with this contrast. You are either in the kingdom or you're not. You are either blessed by God or you are cursed by God. You are either saved or you are lost. You are either redeemed or you are not redeemed. You are either with God or you are with Satan. You're either regenerated or you are not regenerated. Spiritual speaking, if we're speaking simply on the spiritual realm, which Jesus is really talking about here, then the regenerate are the poor, hungry, crying, and hated. The unregenerate are the rich, well-fed, laughing, and liked. So Jesus is using broad, sweeping terminology here to describe the spiritual thinking in reference to sin. Sin for each group. Neither group is without sin. Even the blessed have sin, the sin that Jesus Christ died for, and the sin we fight even prior to glory. So spiritually speaking, those that are regenerate, In reference to their own sinfulness, they see their sinfulness before a holy God. They come poor in spirit. They come hungry for righteousness, not of their own. They mourn over sin. And because they embrace Jesus Christ by faith, they are the hated. The world hates them. That's the group of those blessed. But the unregenerate, in reference to their own sinfulness, Their view of self before God, they come rich in spirit. They think they have what they need. They themselves are well fed on their own sense of righteousness. They do not mourn over sin. They are only laughing in life, and the world loves them. They are liked by all. Why? Because they're just like them. So Jesus is speaking to a large group of people here. And he is saying to all of them, you are either blessed or you are cursed. You're in one category or you're in another category. You're either in the kingdom of God or you are not. That is his message. That is still the message that we preach today. You are among the blessed or you are among the cursed. You sit here today and you think in your own mind, those are the groups. Some here have been among the blessed for a long time. 
Jesus Christ, by His graciousness and mercy, drew you to Himself, young in your days of life, and you have been with Christ a long, long time. You are in the blessed group. Some are new here as in the blessed group. You have a relationship with Christ, and you that relationship with Christ is new. It is fresh. However, some are here among the cursed group. But God is drawing you to Himself. You are not here by mistake. This is not something that was forced upon you, even though you may be sitting here thinking it was forced upon you. God, in His grace, is drawing you to Himself. Your eyes are being opened to the gospel, and the Spirit of God is moving upon you so that you would embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And yet, there are still others who have heard that truth over and over again, and you sit here still rejecting pushing away the truth, suppressing the truth in your own unrighteousness, and by your unbelief you are going in a direction that is away from Jesus Christ. And just like those in this crowd who are following Jesus, you will not come to want to hear Him anymore. You may be here today, but there is coming a day if you continue to reject, you will not want to hear it anymore. That's the way we have to view this whole issue, beloved. It's the way we have to come and and look at this text. You are either among the blessed or you are among the cursed or you are in the process of becoming one of the blessed or you are on the road going to eternal damnation The question is, how do we understand who is? How do we understand who is in the kingdom and who is not? That is a crucial question as we evaluate our own lives. It's a crucial question, probably most crucial as we look at ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. And we think about our own assurance from knowing Jesus Christ. One way to know who's in and who's out is how you view yourself in reference to sin. How you view yourself in reference to righteousness. How you view yourself in reference to the world's view of you as a Christian. Jesus says, you are either poor, hungry, crying, and hated, or you are rich, well-fed, laughing, and well-liked. That's how you view yourself. It's how you see yourself in light of Jesus Christ, in light of your sin before a holy God, and that's how the world looks at you. So in reference to how that goes along, are you spiritually bankrupt before a holy God? Do you come to God with nothing to offer before Christ? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ? Are you mourning over your sin as you see it? And since you stand with Christ, are you hated by the world? Or do you view yourself as spiritually self-righteous before Christ? Are you satisfied with your righteousness without Christ? 
Do you laugh at sin as if it doesn't matter really? You just sin at will and it really doesn't matter at all. And since you don't stand with Christ, your greatest company is those of the world. The world loves you. We saw all of that in verses 20 to 26. If you missed any of that, you can get that on our website. But another way to understand who is who is by how they live. By how they live. And this is what we see here in verses 27 through 38. 27 through 38. Let me just read again verse 27 and verse 37. Because while Jesus shows us two contrasting categories of the in and the out, the blessed and the cursed, there's really two ways in which this plays itself out in our life. Verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Then verse 37 says, And do not judge, and you will not be judged. Again, only two options. There's multiple options. Everything that follows those things explains the the very flow of of those very verses. So everything that follows verse 27 down to verse 36 always highlights for us in 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 more painted color strokes of what loving our enemies looks like. In verse 37 to 38, or 36, I'm sorry, 37 to 38, tell us, and show us the whole issue of judging. So all I want us to notice as we begin this, first of all, is that right out of the start, after Jesus lays out this two-category grouping for all people, He begins His next sentence with the word in the English that we have here, the word but. Allah. Not Allah. Allah, A-L-L-A in the original language. It's the word translated but in the English language. It's a very important word in the original language in that it shows a contrast. A contrast. Which is what Jesus has been doing even beginning from verse 20. And here it would indicate a stronger contrast than normal. The original language, Allah, is a, is a strong contrast word, but not as if to say that what is coming now, beginning in verse 27, is contrastingly different than what was said before. Jesus isn't saying to us, I told you this, verses 20 to 26, but now I'm going to say some contrasting things to you. That's not what he's doing. No, more so, this is the idea of, really the idea of the word moreover, or on top of what I told you. Moreover, think about this also. Here's who's in the kingdom. Moreover, I say to you, here's what it looks like. Here's what comes out in the life if you're in the kingdom. So in his message, he is introducing us to something that goes together with what he has already said. If you're in the kingdom, this is the fruit of your life. If you're outside the kingdom, then this will not be the fruit of your life. That's the idea. 
And notice also, he narrows down the listeners to only those who are hearing. Notice what he says. But I say to you who hear. Why would Jesus have to say that? I say this to you who hear. Why would he say that? Doesn't the text in verse 18, back in describing who it is that came after Jesus comes down from the mountain, after he picks the apostles, right? After he prays all night with the Father, he has this grand task of identifying who those are going to be on which the church is going to go forth. He descends with them stands on a level place, and there's a great multitude of his disciples, verse 17, a great throng of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, and even the northern regions, the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him. Why would Jesus say in verse 27, but I say to you who hear? Because Jesus is narrowing down those who are hearing him with those who are actually hearing Him. It's different. Some here may be hearing my voice, but I would hope all are paying attention to what is being said. That's the idea. I say to you who are paying attention. It's not the sound of His voice. It's those who are taking to heart what He is saying. In other words, I I think Jesus is talking here to the true believer. Jesus is now honing out of the crowd, this large crowd, this great throng of people, who the true believers are, those who have new life and new power in their hearts because they actually believe in Jesus. These are those who are in the kingdom of God. These are those of the blessed group. They may be amongst many who are not, and yet they are of those in the kingdom of God. They, are, they show in their presence in the world in a most distinct, most visible, tangible way that they are followers of Jesus Christ. So this is, as I said at the beginning, the fruit of repentance that the world cannot accomplish by any ethic that it might try to invent called righteousness. The world cannot do what Jesus is saying here. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 2.14 is very clear. The natural man understands not the things of the Spirit. The natural man cannot understand them, therefore he cannot do them. In fact, they are foolishness to him, it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. So Jesus says, I want you believers to really listen to me. I want all of you who are persecuted because of me. I want all of you who are not only known by your hatred of sin, sin in yourself as well as sin in the world as you look around you, but you are known by how you treat others. You are known first by your love of your enemies. Verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. So, what is a Christian? 
This is a Christian. This is the character of those in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus Christ saying just what he said to his disciples in the upper room. This is very important for us to understand because since being in the kingdom of God means that we not see just our sin rightly, but the reality is that we are also hated by the world. Right? We come bankrupt. We come with this reality of our own unrighteousness that we can only be fulfilled in Christ, that it's Christ's righteousness. So even after salvation, we are hungering, we are thirsting for the righteousness of God to be reflected in our lives. We weep and mourn over sin. The closer we, we walk with God, the closer we follow Christ, the more we see our ugliness, our sinfulness. And the more we do that, the world hates us. That makes Christian living difficult, doesn't it? And the temptation for us is to just isolate ourselves. The temptation is to say, hey, listen, the world hates me, and I even hate my sin, and I don't want anybody else to see my sin, and I certainly don't want to be hated, and because I'm such a wretched sinner, and it seems to be so glowing in me each and every day as a Christian, the more I look at Christ, the more I see my sin so clearly, and frankly, I don't want anybody to see that, so I'll just isolate myself. My sin seems so strong to me, and when I'm in and around other sinners, I'm even tempted by their sin, and it seems just easier for my own life to isolate myself from others. I'll just stay away. And on top of that, when I'm interacting with the world, in any kind of level, even a level in which I'm not sinning, As I live for Christ, those people want to ostracize me. They want to say disparaging things against me. They want to spurn my name as evil. So why be around them at all? Isolation seems all that much better for me. You ever thought like that? Living your Christian life, you ever thought, well, I'll just just kind of distance myself from those around me. You look at the world around you, and you, you, especially in our day and age, and we go, my goodness, things are nuts. Everything's gone crazy. I mean, I went to bed one day in a, in a world that seemed to be okay, even though I know it was falling. I woke up in crazy town. What's up is down. What's down is up. What's right is wrong. What's wrong is right. Seems like nobody seems to get anything right. Everybody's fighting at each other. All Everybody's at each other's throats. Somebody wants to be called something they're not. People are living in fantasy land and reality world seems to be so wrong. What in the world is happening? I just, I'll just put my head in the sand and hope everything comes out okay. Sometimes you just want to become a monk. Be alone, quiet, isolated. Sometimes we think like that, especially when it comes to the influence of the world around us. Just keep to myself. And by the way, if I just remove myself from their influence, sometimes we convince ourselves that that's really the essence of holiness. Just isolate myself. We do this as families, right? 
trying to protect our families, protect our kids. We want to try to isolate ourselves, build such high walls around us that no world could ever get in there. And we've forgotten that the greatest thing that collapsed entire humanity into the realm of fallenness is the sin in us. So inside our little cloisters of loneliness is all the sin necessary to corrupt the whole globe. Why? What is Jesus saying? He doesn't say to isolate. He says to engage. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Engage them. With what? With love. Love your enemies. Seems pretty basic, doesn't it? Pretty simple. Jesus says, listen, I've left you a new commandment. Here it is. Love one another. Seems pretty basic. Love your enemies. It's to be the sum of Christian character. Love your enemies. In our evening service, we're going through Galatians. We just passed Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The, the fruit of the Spirit, the first one is love. Love. I made a comment about that saying, listen, love isn't just these things. We know that because we have the rest of the Scriptures that tell us clearly it's not that, let alone 1 Corinthians 13 that lists things that aren't in the fruit of the Spirit that are part of love. Love is this. At least not part of the list that Paul gave the Galatians. So this is the first characteristic of Christianity. This is the first characteristic of a Christian. We are to be loving, and everything Jesus says after that further explains all that is being said about love. So the next three that he lists there, do good, bless, and pray, only help to explain what it means to love. It doesn't mean that's all that it is that explains love, but it certainly is helping us understand what it means to love. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Verse 28, pray for those who mistreat you. Those explain what love is. In other words, to do good, to bless, to pray are only different ways of exercising love. And only a true follower of Christ, only those who actually hear can love their enemies. So it's at this point of love that those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are outside the kingdom of God go in completely opposite directions. And of course, here, Luke doesn't go into the list that Jesus elaborates back in Matthew's Gospel in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. Luke doesn't go into all the details here about the false ethics of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because Jesus does that in Matthew's Gospel as, as Matthew is recording this, what I believe to be the same sermon. Luke doesn't do that. Luke simply here lists it in this concrete, concise way so that Theophilus might have certainty be certainty about all that he had been taught about Jesus. Luke just says the universal points, love your enemies, do not judge. What does he mean? Well, the first truth that we can draw from the words here is that for that Christian, for the Christian, 
This kind of love is to be one that is a continuous reality. It continues in his life to be a lifelong reality. You say, why do you say that? Because all of the commands here, as you look at this text, all of the commands are in the present tense in the original language, and that coincides with a continuous action of our enemies against us. So as much as they're enemies against you, you love. So Jesus is simply saying, in essence, as long and as often as you have enemies, you are to be characterized by this love. Where is the only place we won't have enemies? Glory. Glory. So as long as we're breathing on this terra firma, we have enemies, and as long as that happens, we are to be loving. We're to be responding in love. As long as they go on in their wickedness in this world toward us, then we too go on in our love and our loving treatment of our enemies. That means, beloved, that sometimes that enemy, sometimes even Christians act as enemies toward one another, So the enemy ought to never outdo the Christian. The enemy work of the enemy should never outdo the Christian work of the Christian. Those that are operating as if they are outside the kingdom, a sinful Christian, or those who are actually outside the kingdom, enemies of God, should never outdo the work of those inside the kingdom. And so for us to understand here how we are to be, then we need to understand the true meaning of this love. Like I said, we've looked at this in some ways in our evening service through our study. We'll see some more of that tonight. But one quality that we have not mentioned is that love is not qualified by the value of that which is loved. Let me say that again. Love is not qualified by the value of the thing loved. Sometimes as Christians, we look at a text like this and we go away thinking that the love of the New Testament, the love that the New Testament talks about is a love that sees some kind of value in the object being loved and therefore we love that object. In other words, if they're lovely, I love them. Or if they're lovely by the definition in which I define it, then I love them. But if the citizen of the kingdom is the citizen of the kingdom, and they're the citizen because they have the king, Jesus Christ, right? then being a Christian is because we are in Christ. Right? We are attached to Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. We are in Him. We are in the Beloved. And if we are in Christ, then we are to be like Christ. So this love is the kind of love that is shown by Christ. It is a Christ-like love. That is not just a phrase in our understanding as Christians. That is a reality that we need to think about. It is a Christ-like love. Love. So ask yourself this question What value did Jesus see in you when he saved you and loved you? If your answer to that is, Well, he saw my goodness, he saw all the good things I was doing, you don't know Jesus. 
You've created a Jesus of your own mind based upon your own righteousness that loves you because of your value. And the fact of the matter is we had no value at all. Jesus loved us when we were yet sinners. There was no value in the sinful world that drew Jesus to love it. We were haters of God. We were as Romans chapter 5 says, the ungodly. The ungodly. And if we are in Christ, then we are to be like Christ. So this love is the kind of love that was shown by Jesus Christ. What value in our enemies does Jesus point to? What value in our enemies is Jesus pointing to that we should love? None. There is no value in our enemies that draws us to love them. That's why they're called enemies. This isn't a love that looks to the enemy for value. This is a love that only sees the love of Christ for you. This is a love that sees the reality of how Christ has loved you and therefore that love can be and is to be reflected by you to others. Notice notice that Jesus doesn't say, but I say to you who hear, like your enemies. He didn't say that. Like your enemies. There is nowhere in the New Testament where we can find the words, Jesus liked the Pharisees. Didn't say that. Didn't say it anywhere. The Bible doesn't say Jesus liked the Pharisees, but we know Jesus loved them. You say, really? I mean, he said some pretty hard things to them. Matthew 23, woe to you hypocrites, you Pharisees. Wow, those are pretty hard words. Why do we say that Jesus loved them? Because this love is intelligent and it has a corresponding purpose. It's not feelings. It's not born in emotion. It's not driven by emotion. It is an intellectual, thought-out, rational love that has a corresponding purpose. This love sees all of the hatefulness and all of the wickedness of the enemy, and this love senses all of the stabs in the back from the enemy. It knows all of the harsh words that it said. This love fills the heart with only one desire for the enemy. What is that? To free the enemy from their hate and to free them so that they might be rescued from their sin. So that their soul will not be lost in eternity. That's what this love is. This love has a purpose. It is thought through. It isn't as if you're ignoring all of the hate. If you're ignoring all being ostracized or having your insults at you or, or being said that you're an evil person because you follow Jesus Christ, it isn't any of that. You feel all of that. You know all of that. You sense all of that. It's there. And yet you have a purpose in your love to free them from their hate and to rescue them from their sin through Jesus Christ. We don't ever get in our minds that this is some kind of worldly affection that I consider of value. It's far beyond that. 
That kind of affection is short-sighted. That kind of affection is so earthly, it's temporal. It's even often blind. But the love of Jesus, the love that he's speaking about here, sees nothing attractive in the receiver at all. Doesn't see anything attractive. Its inner drive in this love is simply to see the best for the one who's being loved. You want to see their best. So Jesus is saying, listen, true children of the kingdom love their enemies. Well, that's not what the world does. No, the world does. The world doesn't love their enemies. In fact, Jesus, as he's preaching this message, you can only imagine some of those in the crowd, their ears are beginning to just get in their hearts even, they're getting angry as they hear the words of Jesus because even in Judaism during the time of Jesus' preaching this message, they were taught not to love their enemies, they're taught to hate their enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 45 through 45, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, Jesus wasn't making some new rule. Jesus wasn't coming along and saying, hey, listen, this was the rule before, now here's a new rule. I'm setting myself over and above the old rules. No, he's simply stating what was always from the beginning. This has always been the rule. He's saying, listen, the rule you've heard and the rule you've been taught has been totally corrupted. This is the rule. Back in Exodus chapter 23, verse 4 and 5, it says this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. This is your enemy. You meet the the donkey or an ox on the road, you know it's your enemies. You you don't go, ha ha, guess what? I got one over on this guy. I'm going to take that to myself. No, you give it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall, refrain, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You'll help him. He's there with his donkey. You walk by. You don't say, oh, I'm, hey, check that out. I'm not helping this guy out. No, you help him even though he's your enemy. You help the guy. That was an Old Testament rule. Even Job knew this as Job laments his trial under the friends whom were so-called friends, as he states his complaints, as they are accusing him of wrongdoing, back towards the end of Job, in Job 31, just before God rebukes Job. Job says this, verse 29, Have I rejoiced in the extinction of my enemy? Job's saying, listen, you guys are accusing me of all wrong. I haven't rejoiced in the extinction of my enemy. I've done none of that. Or have I exalted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Have the men of my tent not said, quote, who can find one who has not been satisfied with his meat, unquote? Job says, listen, I haven't done that. I haven't even projected that in my life. In fact, my home has been open. Anybody who comes to my home, they all the report is they leave well fed. I've satisfied them all. I haven't hated anyone. 
Psalm 7, verses 3 through 5. O Lord my God, the psalmist says, if I have done this, if there be injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue me, or let let the enemy pursue uh, me and overtake me, and let him trample my life down to the ground and, and lay my glory in the dust. Again, a cry of integrity from the heart of the psalmist reflecting how he's treated others. He hasn't hated his enemy. It's deeper than not doing harm. Not hating your enemy is deeper than not doing something against him or or moving to help him. It goes even deeper than that. It's as Proverbs 24, 17 states it. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So it's more than just not acting out. It's what's going on in the heart. It's what's happening inside when you see one of your enemies having difficulty in life. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Why? For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So it's it's in that sense that Jesus is saying, love your enemies. He says, how? Do, Do good. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Eulogize them in a good way. That's what the word bless is. Eulogize. We do that at funerals. We when we're talking about our enemy, we go, nah, that guy. Man, I'm hoping he goes down. Eulogize them. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray. Pray for those who, by the way, this mistreat is an ongoing mistreatment. They're continually mistreating you. They're continually hating you. The idea is they're continually your enemies. So Jesus Preaching, that would have been immediately offensive to many in the crowd. What Jesus is saying would have just hit their ears with offense. There's Pharisees there. There's Sadducees in the crowd. They would have, there would have been synagogue officials in this crowd. And they're teaching that you love your neighbor, but you don't love your enemy. They're teaching you hate your enemy. Jesus is coming along and saying, those guys are wrong. Love those who love you. That's what they're teaching. Love those who like you. That's how they define neighbor. You love those who like you, those who are, who are of your clan, those who aren't outside of you, those who love you, and you, you hate your enemy. And Jesus comes along, and he turns the whole cart upside down, and the whole throng of people, he says to them, no, no, you love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. It's like saying to the families who lost family members in 9-11, love those terrorists. You love those terrorists. Love the hijackers' families and do good to them. Or to the Jews of Jesus' day, love the Romans. Of the Roman. They hated Rome. 
And it was, it was taught by the leaders in Judaism of the day that it was a virtue to hate Rome. In fact, the greater you hated your enemy, the more you were honored, the more righteous you were. That's the heart of the jihadists today, isn't it? Hate your enemy. Get rid of the infidel. Get rid of them. Sadly, hate is a virtue to many today. We see it all over, right? Look at the TV. Turn it on. You'll see hate is a virtue. Cancel those who disagree with you. Get rid of those who want to challenge you. Get rid of those who want to ask a question about whatever it is you're doing. Stop them. Get out of them. Remove them. Silence them. Turn them off. Whatever it is, that's a virtue. It's even within evangelicalism today. Jesus comes along and He says, no, no, love your enemies and do good to them. Why? Because hate is what enemies do. Hate is what the world does. They cast insults at you. They hate you. They ostracize you. That's what the world does. That's what those outside the kingdom do. They hate. And it shows in overt and covert ways. The Pharisees were experts at hating. They were experts at it. And it showed in all the ways of their life. They saw it as a virtue. Remember Jesus highlighted it back in chapter 6. Remember verses 6 and following, and it came about on another Sabbath that He entered the synagogue. And he was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees are there. They're watching him closely. They're scrutinizing every move, every word that Jesus does. Not to see if they might follow Jesus, to see if he did something on the Sabbath, if he healed on the Sabbath. They weren't interested in the fact that he could heal or that this might be somebody from God who was doing things to help people out of love and mercy from God to people. No, they just were looking at him closely to see if he did this on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath was above anything. They wanted to find a reason to accuse him. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Why? Because God always knows. God always knows. God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knew what they were thinking, and He said to the man with the withered hand, come here, rise and come up here. The man gets up, comes forward, and Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees, to those in the crowd, but particularly to the leaders who were there, the leaders of the synagogue, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of Jerusalem, He says to them, I ask you, Let me ask you a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? In other words, is it lawful on the Sabbath to express love or not? That's the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to not do good? To save a life or to destroy a life? They understood the question clearly because after looking around at them all, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. 
even the hatred of the Pharisees, even their understanding of things, Jesus, out of love for them, was going to express love for this man. What they thought wasn't going to change that. Jesus was going to express love for both and all the people. And he says, stretch out your hand. The man's hand is restored. But what happens to those who hate? What happens to those who only want to hate? Who want their righteousness their way? Who are well fed? Who are laughing at sin? Who the world loves? What happened to them? They themselves were filled with rage. Hate bred more hate. They discussed how they might get rid of Jesus. See, to do good would have been for the Pharisees to care for that man well before the time Jesus ever arrived on the scene. It would have been to care for this man out of a heart of love for this man for his well-being instead of their pious keeping of the law. But instead, they actually were showing hate toward him because of their lack of care for the man. That's why they get so angry. That's why they start talking about how to get rid of Jesus. Listen, you're going to bring real love in the room? No way. We're not going to have that. We're satisfied on our own definition of love. You get out of here, real love. Because his love exposed their hate. Their kind of love was actually hate in practice. Jesus' kind of love was a God-honoring, Christ-like love, and it exposed them all the more. So this hate is an ignorant, non-comprehending hate. Only one purpose in that kind of hate is that is to damage. And yet... Jesus says one of the ways of overcoming that hate is to keep meeting it with deeds of love. You just keep loving them. Keep loving your enemies. And if, it, if that hate continues, you love more. And if it continues, you love them more. And the more you love, your conscience is clear before the Lord that you're doing what God has asked you to do because the Christian is never to pay back evil for evil to anyone, right? It's not our job. It's not our job to take vengeance in our own hands. That's what Romans 12, verse 17 says. Never pay back evil to anyone. But they were wrong. Yes, God knows that. God's the one of vengeance. We are not. You love your enemies. You do good to those who hate you. Listen, beloved, this is a passage that ought to be running in our mind all the time. Why? Because we're always dealing with one another. We're always dealing with the world. Don't allow what is done by some evil person to overwhelm you. Don't allow it. Overwhelm that evil with a corresponding love that's not like the world. That's Jesus' point. Don't be like the world. That's why down in verse 35, he says, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. 
For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He's not saying, listen, if you do that, you're going to earn your sonship. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, when you do that, you show your sonship. You, you're a reality of one who's in the kingdom and your reward is great. You have Christ. And they'll recognize. They'll recognize that you are different. So Peter said, right, be ready all the time to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. They may be persecuting you. They may be challenging you. There may be a time when God allows you to suffer. You stand fast, convinced with Christ, in the love of Christ, knowing that you have the best reward and you just act and respond in love. Why? Because you're not like others. You have a supernatural love. You have a supernatural love. And quite possibly, that will be just what God uses to say to them, believe upon me. Believe upon me. The Apostle Paul, who was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, the beloved Apostle Paul, prior to conversion in Acts chapter 7, is holding the jackets of those who are picking up the rocks to throw at Stephen. And Stephen prays, Father, do not hold this sin against them. You say, man, I wonder if God ever answered Stephen's prayers. He sees heaven opened and he goes into glory. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And then Acts chapter 9 comes and Stephen's prayer is answered. As Jesus Christ meets Saul on the road to Damascus and Saul is miraculously saved. By Christ. Love prevailed and Saul was saved. Love prevailed. Stephen wasn't on earth anymore, so what? Love prevailed. Well, Jesus elaborates on this further in the following verses, this whole idea of love. And wouldn't you know it, we're out of time. What is a Christian? John 13, 35, they will know we are Christians by our love. They will know we are disciples of Jesus Christ by our love. Father, we thank you for just this surface look, really, at what you are, love personified. Lord, help us to understand that in its fullest sense. Help us to reach out to one another, to not be so engulfed in our own sinfulness that we can't even, can't even see love because we don't first recognize our sinfulness before you. Lord, help us in our own hearts mourn over our own sin, to grieve in a right way, to be thankful for the gift of repentance. The fruit of repentance is love. Help us to truly repent of our own sin that we might exercise love to others. For what they have done to us is nothing compared to what we have done to you.
Lord, help us love like you have loved us. Help us do good to even the worst of our enemies. All for your glory. Help us to practice this in Christ's name. Amen.